What's up, everybody? Happy Friday. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is important, not important, science for people who give a shit. This weekly newsletter features the most important science news, how to think about it, and what the hell you can do about it. Hit subscribe right now so you get this audio newsletter every Friday, plus our conversations with the smartest people in the world who, for some reason, talk to me on Mondays. You can find the digital version and links to everything at newsletter.importantnotimportant.com or right from your show notes. And of course, you can join our community and support our work by becoming a member. You can work alongside some truly incredible folks on the front lines of the future, join monthly live special guest sessions, plus some other events, get exclusive reports and quarterly updates on the business, first looks at some uh, investment opportunities we're working on, and of course, uh, invitations to share your work and participate in working groups and panels with other folks. So you can do all of that at newsletter.importantnotimportant.com or the link in your show notes, all of which helps to make Make sure this work continues. It's Friday, May 13th, somehow, 2022. Here's the news. In climate change news, as the historic drought or desertification or redification continues in the American West, I don't know why we don't have a name for this very big thing yet, but anyways, as the earth heats up even quicker than expected, the massively complex and convoluted systems we built to make the West livable at scale, so tens of millions of folks, among the most complex things we've ever built anywhere, all those systems, the people behind it, the people benefiting from them, are having a bit of a come-to-Jesus moment. So here's how to understand it. The great American Western dams, uh, rivers, thousands of reservoirs, including things like Flaming Gorge, Glen Canyon, Lakes Powell and Mead, the Sacramento and Colorado rivers, they simultaneously do two things. Divert water uh, for drinking and for farms, and they provide hydropower to, again, those tens of millions of people and acres of farmland in Southern California and across the Southwest. So they're in trouble. Many of the dams are in poor condition, or they're just holding back far less water than they used to, thanks to climate change. So less fresh water means less drinking water, less farming water, and less hydropower. And less power from hydro is particularly complicated because here's the deal. The West is getting hotter during the day more often, but it's actually also getting hotter at night, and that sucks more. So we're using not only more air conditioners, but using them throughout the day and night. And we're using them at night when there's no solar power. So Western utilities have thousands of miles of power lines, many of which have already exploded. They're exposed to an increasing number of fires from that same heat. Meanwhile, California can't decide whether to close its aging nuclear plant, and of course it hasn't built a new one in decades. All in all, it's going to be increasingly dependent on that renewable energy. Here's the other thing. There aren't yet, growth mindset, already enough batteries to store that renewable energy and not enough battery materials in the domestic supply chain to build more of them and faster. And again, all of those are connected and dependent on those same exposed above-ground power lines, which most recent estimates say would cost billions to bury and, and take at least a decade. So also there's going to be an earthquake at some point. So look, any way you slice it, we're looking at more blackouts like those of 2020, whether they're planned or not. Not unlike COVID 
and public health, the day-to-day infrastructure and support systems of the 20th century simply are not built to be tested in a real way. And so far, we seemed disinclined at best to consider the broader implications of what that means. And so we're doing mandated water restrictions, uh, more efforts at water recycling and drip irrigation, more efforts at, unfortunately, increasingly dangerous, as we've seen in New Mexico this week, prescribed burns, more fighting over expensive, power-hungry, and ecosystem trashing, maybe essential, desalination plants. You got fewer farms, fewer crops, fewer farmers. So, Look, maybe you're not in the mood to answer my big questions, but we have to ask them, which is, why is the West in this situation, and did it have to be this way? So let's start there. And the answers might be that this infrastructure was the only way the West was going to be livable at scale, but it required perfect conditions, which is what the West has had for about 100 years. And unfortunately, those conditions don't exist anymore, so maybe it can't exist at scale any longer either. All of this... Hundreds of thousands of indigenous people who live for tens of thousands of years on the same lands could have attested to if we had not systematically wiped them out, but their descendants are still attesting to those things. The point is, there's no average precipitation years in the West, really ever, but far fewer now that we've done what we've done. And so the systems we built, because the finite resource that they shuttled around, water, is much less, the systems are failing. They're becoming useless. Meanwhile, look, the climate tech money is flowing, and that's great. Speaker Pelosi half-heartedly wants us to do something on climate for the children. But look, despite steadily, if incrementally, fewer emissions from countries like the U.S., that's right, they have gone down, we're still not doing anywhere near enough, while the fossil fuel industry commits billions to new projects. So, In a nutshell, the West is just beginning to undergo a huge number of productive trade-offs that are going to come as a shock to most folks who've enjoyed and profited off of almost a century of uninterrupted and relative bliss. But that bliss was always a temporary facade. And so the trade-offs are just going to have to be larger, really a holistic paradigm shift prompted by whatever the answer to this question may be, which is, if the West as we built it isn't sustainable— What version of it is? So here's what you can do. Uh, The fabulous Khan Academy has beta launched a new middle school earth science curriculum. And you might have heard recently, most of us didn't actually take earth science. You might remember that you did, but you didn't. You can take it at the Khan Academy, and you can provide a feedback form there too because it's in beta, which is awesome. And don't forget to donate. They do incredible work. In COVID news, vaccine equity update, just 15.9% of people in low-income countries have received at least one dose, and 34.5% of people worldwide have received zero doses. So here's the news. Continuing on last week, we're losing our ability to contextualize COVID. And again, here's what I wrote last week. Raw case numbers are misleading now. My relatively educated guess is 75% of real cases are testing positive at home and thus not included in reported totals, or they're not testing at all. So the reported totals you've seen, and again, they're trending up, still are probably 25% at best of what's really out there. Here's how to understand it. COVID cases, as reported in 2020 or 2021 or 2022, whatever, they're always a map. They're not the territory right? They're a limited and often biased view into the landscape of what's really going on. 
hospitalizations and death are the reporting behind those is somewhat more black and white, right? And probably more accurate. Though in some places, there's misinformation or disinformation situations like in India and Egypt and Pakistan that really kind of blow that all away. The point is, as states across the United States pull back on counting and reporting rising COVID cases, with variants becoming much better at immunity invasion, evasion, not invasion, and with tens of millions of cases predicted this winter, we have to ask what else we lose when we stop doing that fundamental work. So for example, we continue to not get answers to unanswered questions like what percentage of positive cases get long COVID? Why do we need that answer so desperately? Well, so we can better understand your and my current day-to-day -day personal risks, of course, but also so we can immediately start building research into what the most common symptoms are. It's a huge variety. Who gets it and why? But also an entirely new healthcare support structure for this mass disabling event that's still underway and could affect billions directly and indirectly. So already some estimates say that 24 million Americans may be experiencing these long hauler symptoms. And the current diagnosis is a process of elimination, basically saying, can this wide variety of symptoms be explained by any other diagnosis? If not, I guess that's what it is. But there's also a parallel investigation we're not really doing. Once you are diagnosed with this thing, how do we treat it? How do we treat long COVID? And there's no proven treatments yet, again, growth mindset, but there may be one that has some incremental benefit, and that's Paxlovid. And again, I want to come back to measurement, contextual measurement, which is, look, clinical trials uh, for anything are wildly expensive and often fail. Uh, that's why it's a trial. COVID money is inexplicably drying up everywhere. But considering everything, maybe our immediate goal shouldn't be a cure, right? But something, anything to help these people to plan ahead for where we're very clearly going. So here's what you can do. Uh, if you've had COVID or someone you know has, one, talk to your doctor, not a doctor, this guy, and then direct yourself or that person towards Recover, which is an NIH, uh, National Institute of Health-led research project to better understand what the hell we're dealing with with long COVID. Note, participants will not receive treatment, but you can find a study near you. There's like 30 centers already set up, so check that out. In food and water news, America's nationwide baby formula shortage is getting worse. And I'll quote Jed Luggum from the incredible popular information here. The national out-of-stock rate for baby formula reached 43% last week. And there are a variety of reasons why baby formula is in short supply. For months, the industry has struggled with supply chain challenges related to the pandemic, of course. And then in February, Abbott Nutrition, one of a handful of major manufacturers, recalled three popular varieties of formula. Uh, four babies were hospitalized with bacterial infections after drinking the formula, and two died. So here's how to understand it. Like abortion, which again we talked about last week, it's helpful to remember the table stakes here, which is that the U.S. has no guaranteed paid family leave no guaranteed sick leave, and no more child tax credit, which worked great. So the repercussions of having a baby at all, even if you choose to, are enormous. In addition, America sources over 95% of its formula domestically from just three companies. So again, all of that, all those things are policy choices, which to answer my typical question is, no, it doesn't have to be this way. Whether we're talking time or money or both, being a parent in America is wildly expensive because we've decided it should be that way. And that's true even if you 
breastfeed. Time off, again, not paid. The struggles to make it actually work. Uh, the pumps, the bags, the freezer space, the food that makes the milk. If you can actually make milk at all, it all costs money. It costs actual money. And also, FYI, babies eat all of the time. They're fucking relentless little animals. Nearly everything about breastfeeding in America, and again, this is from my very limited perspective as a very privileged father of three who could afford a lactation consultant, multiple pumps, a dishwasher, and tons of formula, is mythologized. Yes, breastfeeding is great for the baby, but it's also a tremendous, exhausting pain in the ass, and often just not an option for a lot of folks. We not only pay women less in general and don't give them time off to breastfeed, we shame them when they don't do it, whether it's by choice or because they can't, for one of the many, many reasons why many, many women can't. At one point, my wife and I had three kids under three. Again, incredibly lucky to be in that situation. I can tell you that being entirely dependent on breast milk that could be left out for six seconds too long, could be spilled, or could be left in the car or in the office, is a nightmare that we were privileged to live through. So when formula hit in the 1950s, it totally changed the game. It saved the lives of so many babies and freed millions of women, probably your mom, from having to cry in public because you couldn't latch. Formula makes it easier for mothers to sleep, to travel, to take medicine, to be less stressed for parents who want to or have to adopt or use a surrogate. So yeah, supply chains are still a mess for fucking everything, including formula, and Abbott sucks. But like diapers, formula shouldn't ever, ever be something that parents have to ration for price or scarcity or both. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Here's what you can do. Use Common Cause to call your representatives, especially the men, to ask them what they're doing about the formula shortage now and to make it easier and more affordable to feed a baby overall. If you are possibly able to donate breast milk, let's do this thing. There's a process, but it would be appreciated. You can start by finding the closest human milk banking location near you. Link is in your show notes or in the newsletter. Go through that screening process, and then let's feed some babies. In health and bio news, so we're going to talk about bad guys now. New federal estimates say that almost 108,000 people died from drug overdoses in 2021 in America, which is a 15% increase over 2020. Over 80,000 of those involved opioids, and 71,000 involved illegally manufactured fentanyl. Here's how to understand it. Overdose deaths actually dropped for the first time in decades in 2018, but while correlation does not imply causation, they've skyrocketed since then for some big reason. From NPR, a recent study showed that for the first time in a decade, the number of teens who died from overdoses rose in 2020. Addiction researchers think it's primarily because fentanyl is becoming increasingly added into counterfeit prescription drugs, which are popular among this age group. So listen, you've probably heard at this point of the notoriously monstrous Sackler family, their company Purdue Pharma, and their brand name drug OxyContin, but it turns out, like Contra, they weren't the final boss after all. In the Washington Post this week, 1.4 million newly available records revealed Malincrot Pharmaceuticals, the largest manufacturer of opioids in the U.S. with a 27% share from 2006 to 2014, once cultivated 200-plus doctors to reliably prescribe their drugs. Just a quarter of those doctors have been convicted of crimes, had their licenses revoked, or paid fines. From the article, 
Mallinckrodt's 30-milligram oxycodone tablet became the preferred drug on the street, according to the DEA. The baby blue-colored pills, the equivalent of a hit of heroin, became so ubiquitous that the smuggling route from Florida to Appalachia became known as the Blue Highway. I'm going to include two more quotes here from the company's promotional materials to doctors. I need you to know how truly fucked up and prevalent American gaslighting can be, whether we're talking cigarettes, fossil fuels, or opioids. The company's promotional material included a reggae song with the chorus, You can start at the middle, you can start at the top, you can start with very little, but that's not where you should stop. Your patient needs relief, man, so please do what you should. And secondly... With older adults, start dose low, go slow, the company wrote in marketing material for drug industry trade shows, but go. Here's what you can do. Please just read the entire Washington Post piece. It's in the show notes and in the newsletter and share it with people so we understand what's being done to us. In Beep Boop News, which again could be anything from artificial intelligence to data privacy to cybersecurity, whatever. The ACLU won a settlement this week with Clearview AI, the sketchy face surveillance company we've talked about quite a bit and has used the world over by governments and police departments and everyone. Look, Clearview isn't alone in this profiting off the historic invasion of privacy we're going through, as I've documented over and over. Every win for data privacy is just that, a win. Again, incremental progress. We can all agree that GDPR, or as you know it, on every fucking website, except all cookies, is annoying and possibly an enormous waste of effort and money. But that doesn't mean we can't learn from it and that more and better data privacy laws aren't needed. Connecticut, as we said, is the recent fifth state with a data privacy law, only 45 states to go. Meanwhile, Congress has been actually trying to pass a federal version since, like, we were using carrier pigeons. And they're still at it just this week. But have no doubt, it might never happen, or it might be watered down. But like Paxlovid and long COVID research, like California's water rationing, of course we need more, much more. I'm never going to stop pushing for more and better. But we learn from every incremental bit of progress, however compromised, however tainted by industry. Each new law and improvement buoys activists and supporters. It improves social norms and begins to unravel the structures designed to extract maximum profit at whatever social cost. Here's what you can do. Get involved with Fight for the Future. They've been around for a decade to help support antitrust bills, net neutrality, and to fight facial recognition, among so many other essential movements uh, of this digital time. Here's 10 things from my notebook. Please, please get the elderly in your life a booster. They work incredibly well. And of course, push for other MPIs wherever they live or work, including masks, ventilation, and air cleaning. Our world and data has new information on what share of people are vegetarian, vegan, or flexitarian. I would like you to know how much oil companies are profiteering off your pain at the pump. And I'd like you to spread the word on that. So for instance, BP's profits are up three times what they were the year before. Uh, We're trying to find new ways to remove bias from medical AI models before we use them, which is intelligent. The Biden administration finally unveiled their long overdue environmental justice plan. The math is very clear on electric vehicles. They are cheaper than gas automobiles in almost every state in the U.S. The U.S. plastic recycling rate, which to be very clear, is not how much stuff you shove in the bin before you finally take the bag out. It is how much we can actually technically recycle. That recycling rate dropped to 5% last year. So 
The whole thing is a lie, essentially. Amazon is going to reimburse employees for abortion travel because that's broken. We've got information on how big grocery chains ensure that food deserts stay that way. And a really cool list of the climate innovations we still need. So listen, that's the news for this week. Hit subscribe now so you get next week's analysis straight to your feed. To go deeper on the news or to find your action steps, again, always go to newsletter.importantnotimportant.com. Thank you for being a part of our community, and thanks for giving a shit. Have a great weekend.